The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So most of you know we've been uh, um, talking on subjects related to this book. Some of you have gotten a hold of, but uh, you can get it online, download it for free, Meditation, A Way of Awakening by Ajahn Sushito. He's a British Buddhist monk, longtime monk. He teaches a lot in the States. In fact, a couple of our community members are on a month-long retreat with him right now at Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, a place where many of us have practiced, where I teach a couple times a year. And... Uh, so this book, we're right on, I think, page 138 or so. Uh, and the chapter is the chapter on the elements, it's called. Yeah, page 128 to 138, in case you're following along. If you want to find the link for that in our weekly email that we sent out, send out every week that announces this practice group and the other programs at the center, we always have the link. To this book there. And you can sign up to get that weekly email by going to our website, or there's a paper under the bulletin board you can fill out and leave in the office, and we'll sign you up for that weekly email with program announcements. And I mentioned last week that um, to start recognizing the two ways our mind operates in the world, our knowing mind. And uh, generally, for most of us, our knowing is dominated by conceptual activity, thinking activity. So we might have a direct experience of seeing something, hearing something, touching something, feeling something in the body, feeling an emotion. But then very quickly, the thinking mind, right, it, it abstracts, it tells itself a story. Oh, I just felt that. And then it interprets that experience, and we call this mental proliferation. So we start to think about our experience. And it can be quite a while because we've learned to trust our thoughts about who I am, our thoughts about what's happening, our thoughts about who I think you are. So one of the things that awareness, mindful awareness reveals is that we're lost in thought most of the time. That's actually a healthy sign it's a sign that somebody's been practicing when they begin to realize how much of the time they're lost in thought. If somebody tells you they're mindful all the time, you can pretty much guarantee they're not practicing. <laughs> if somebody says, oh, boy, I'm just getting lost in thought all the time. I'm being pushed around and reacting to this and fantasizing about that. and you go, Oh, that's a good sign, right? That means you're mindfulness, mindful enough, aware enough to notice how much of our life, our waking life, is dominated by being lost in thought. Lost in thought, what that means is the mind is thinking, but it isn't aware that it's thinking. Right? There's thinking going on, but the mind mistakenly thinks the thoughts represent reality. Like if you're sitting here fuming that I have the windows open or that, the place is too crowded, or whatever, you know. Whatever you're fuming about becomes your reality. Like, this is what's happening. But awareness understands, oh, 
there's a body and a mind, and there is this activity, and all of that's being known. That would be being mindfully aware. So instead of being the one who's fuming, in a sense, you're the one who's aware that fuming is happening. Complaining mind, blaming mind is happening. And it's like this. It feels like this. The cognitive activity looks like this. The emotional vibe that goes with it feels like this. This is just something being known. That's what awareness is. Now, how often does that happen during the day? That we're aware that this is what's happening. Oh, that the mind is planning this or worrying about that or speculating or fantasizing. Not that often we have that reflective awareness. So one part of the mind, one part, one way of knowing we could call, you know, the conceptual knowing, the storytelling knowing. It's, it's reality mediated, governed by language. Right? So there's that. And that tends to be the great majority of our waking time. And then there's this other way of knowing that I talked about last week. You could call feeling into the moment this empathetic, intuitive, direct, immediate knowing. And what is that mind knowing? Well, it's knowing sensation as sensation, seeing as seeing, hearing as hearing, smelling as smelling, tasting as tasting, and thinking as thinking. Now, Thinking as thinking means that irregardless of the content of the thought, the mind knows thinking's happening. Right? And so it's like uh, the mind thinking, the thinking mind is a little bit like we can't stop the tactile experience from happening. We are either aware of it or we're not. The touching Right, the clothes, the ear against the skin. Touching is just happening. Seeing is happening. Hearing is happening. Even smelling and tasting is happening. And thinking is happening. But it's just an activity that can be known. Oh yeah, that's what that part of the mind does. It thinks, cognizes, it perceives, and then thinks about what it's perceiving. That's just what it does. But our, is that reflective, that part of the mind we call mindfulness, is the mind reflectively aware that thinking is happening? Well, that's just thoughts being known. Sensations being known. Seeing being known. Hearing being known. This is another way of knowing. And this way of knowing we're not as familiar with. It's not as common. It's available for all of us. But the mind, generally speaking, is way out of balance. Where We're much more dependent on the kind of knowing that's dominated or mediated by language thinking, what we could just generally call thinking, versus this more direct and immediate kind of knowing. And it has all kinds of implications. Because our our world, when it's dominated by the thinking mind, we take our stories that the thinking mind constructs, we take them to be reality. And then we get into patterns, right? There's this, this new kind of phrase in neuropsychology, neuroscience that really points to this. I just heard something on, uh, um, what's that show on Sunday afternoons on public radio? Um, Something on the media, on the media it's called. 
Brooke Gladstone. I really like that show. I don't know if people listen, but they always talk about how the media affects us. And Brooke was interviewing somebody like a cognitive scientist, and he was talking. He didn't say this catchphrase that is used a lot, that um, neurons that fire together wire together. Have you heard that? Right. So, But he, he was talking about that too, like, when a story through media is repeated over and over again, um, you know, the election is rigged or something like that, it doesn't matter if someone's saying there's no evidence to support that elections are rigged. It's just that the mind keeps hearing it and it starts connecting, right? The mind is a simplistic thing. Elections and rigged, right? Elections and rigged. And when I think that, then there's some cognitive activity, right? There's some neurological activity, and the more that neurological activity, right, the rigged elections, you know, me alone, me wanting, me afraid, right? Whatever the pattern is, the more it gets repeated, the more it gets wired in so that it's more likely to repeat in the future, right? And politicians and other skilled marketers they know how to take advantage of this so that because although we don't want to admit it, we live in a constructed reality. The mind, collectively and individually, we are constructing our reality. And it's not like we're in charge of the construction. It's just happening in this interdependent way, in a sense being manipulated by forces that are also being manipulated. And then you understand, we understand why it can be so messy and uh, how justice, fairness gets lost, oppression happens, suffering happens, right? Because of these patterns that exist. So one of the great disadvantages of spending most of our time, probably high 90%, of the time, lost in thought, is that our thoughts, that reality of thought, the stories that our thoughts construct, is being governed by underlying principles that have been wired in. And in Buddhism, we we would say self-view, self-centered view is one of those underlying principles that no longer is even questioned. It's so deeply wired as a cognitive habit to, when we're in that world of the reality that thinking constructs, to always construct it in terms of there's a me, and then there's this external world that I exist in. A lonely me, a needy me, an angry me, fearful me, and then the wild world that I can't quite seem to govern or get in control or bend to my will, or find a safe space in. And so one way or another, the stories our minds, my mind tells, is from that frame, repeats that frame, comes out of that frame. So there's a way to break that dominance of that way of being, that way of thinking, inhabiting that bubble, that reality, And that is to come into the world, in Buddhism we say the world of Dhamma or Dharma, the same word, 
two different traditions. So the Sanskrit version of the word is dharma, which is you hear a little bit more often. But in the early Buddhist traditions, they used the Pali language, which is, of course, related to the Sanskrit, and the word is dhamma instead of dharma. Just like kama or karma. We know karma, the Sanskrit version, and then the Pali version is kama, so related. So this word dharma or dhamma means often is translated as the way it is, but not the way it is in terms of the story we, we have, but the more direct and immediate, intuitive, empathetic knowing. And I mentioned last week, like when we, like we can do right now, and hopefully we did in moments at least during the sit tonight, the guided sit, when we feel into the body, you see, we abandon the need for any definition I have of my experience of my body or what I expect that I'll be feeling when I feel into my body as I actually feel into the sensations, like even the sits bone against the chair, the cushion, or the air touching the skin of my forearm. But you see, as I actually tune in to that light feeling of air against the skin, the need for language, the need for a mental image disappears. I don't, that actually gets in the way of the immediacy of sensation, right? The coolness of the touch of the air against the skin. Or of the hardness of the sits bone against the chair or the cushion. We don't need a mental image. We don't need a word or sentences to be intimate with reality. That aspect of reality, that non-conceptual reality, right? And you see, actually, to the contrary, words and mental images can get in the way because of the habit, right? Because they've we've wired it together, like reality equals our thought about reality. It's like I might, for a moment, feel my sits bone against the cushion, but then in the next moment, I'll have a thought. Oh, yeah, I'm feeling my sits bone. And then the thought, and it's hard. Like we might even have a description. But then now that concept, I'm feeling my sits bone, and it feels heavy and hard there. It aches a little. And then the thought, the concept substitutes. It's sort of that reality substitutes for the direct knowing of sensation. It's hard to sustain that more immediate, direct way of knowing. So we train ourselves. That's a lot of what we do. And you might think, well, yeah, but why would it be so important to be able to know hardness is hardness, or softness is softness, or heaviness is heaviness, lightness is lightness, and coolness is coolness, and warmth is warmth? Well, basically, we're breaking the habit of you know repeating, going to the constructed story that our thoughts construct. We're breaking the dependence, the mind's dependence on that way of knowing, and we're cultivating a new way of knowing. And that new way of knowing actually has there's a lot of immediate freedom. Because as I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> one of the primary effects of being lost in our concepts, our thoughts, is that one of the more deeply wired frames, 
out of which all of our stories arise is the frame of self, me being apart, me separate from everything else. We think, no, 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 that's how it is. But actually, it's just a story that gets told in the mind. In the same way, we tell ourselves, I'm at Calm Ground Meditation in Minneapolis, Minnesota, on Sunday evening, December 4th, 2016, right? Like, that all makes so much sense. But it's all, like, what does all that have to do with this, the immediacy of this, body, sensing, touch, sight, sound, smell, thoughts are just thoughts. There's no December 4th about this. There's no common ground about the immediacy of being here. And the more we can enter that world and reside in that world, that direct world of awareness, awareness of things as they are, awareness of Dhamma or Dharma, the way it is, the more we immediately have a release or relief of not imagining things not appearing to be dualistic. Right? So we say that when we have some samadhi, this is a word we use a lot, because there's, there's not a useful English word that talks about awareness that is intimate and balanced and stable. It's badly, samadhi is badly translated as concentration. For most of us, the word concentration involves the mind being tight, like I'm focusing on something, but that's not what samadhi means. Samadhi really is a gathering, like it's really a mind, or you could say heart, a heart that's not being fragmented, not being divided up through the process of thinking. You know, the flittering about, oh, you're over there, that's interesting, or, oh, i got to do that tomorrow. And right, It's sort of that, due to the proliferation of thought and the emotional charge that goes with thought, the energy of the mind appears to become fragmented. And then we feel discombobulated and uneasy and insecure most of the time as we're living our lives. So when we cultivate this mindful awareness, we start to experience samadhi, this unification or collectedness. It's literally the energies of the mind are no longer being fragmented or discombobulated or ruffled or agitated due to thinking. And the mind's attachment or identification, identify being identified with the thoughts that are being thought. So when I train my attention, the awareness, to be aware of sensation in and of itself, not my mental image of the body or not my idea of what I'm feeling in the body, but sensing, knowing sensation, 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 then because of the completeness or the fullness and the continuity of that way of knowing, there's, in a sense, no space in the mind to fragment itself, right? for the mind to think in a way that's fragmenting, dividing up the mind, confusing the mind. So one of the immediate effects of like 
simply being aware of the body in the way that I'm talking about is we feel whole, unified. And it's like everything shifts. The neurotic, existential, emotional uneasiness that we mostly live our life with temporarily goes away. And we start feeling whole and complete and alive and connected. I mean, we have all kinds of world words like in the groove, things are okay. And then we might associate it, well, I had a good cup of green tea with something, you know, or, you know, I'm in the place that I like to be in. But it isn't that actually, because you can have this anywhere, whenever the mind is gathered, is not fragmented. Is The energies of the mind are here and now. And in this moment, it's a moment where the mind, whatever that is, the heart, the mind, isn't being fragmented, isn't being agitated or confused by any thoughts. doesn't mean there aren't any thoughts in the mind. It just means that the thoughts aren't governing, framing the experience that we're having in the moment. And this, we learn something so important the more we do this work, and that is that thoughts are a really essential tool to being a human being, especially in culture, in relationship with other human beings. But thoughts are not here to explain the world to ourselves. Thoughts aren't here to tell us what's going on. We think. No. Thoughts are here to connect with other beings because language is the bridge, right? And it's not the only bridge in terms of connecting with other human beings, but it's one way. It's interesting, I don't know if you know this, um, but in ancient history, like in ancient India, and I think in other cultures too, initially when they started having written language, they it was like uh, sacred things were too important to like write down. You would it would it was used for like inventory, commerce, things like that. So like really pragmatic things, you would use language, written language, but you wouldn't use it for important things. You kind of keep it in that more knowing, that more intuitive place. And then if you were going to share it, of course you'd have to use language, body language, other ways to convey it to somebody else. But now we have our sacred texts, right? the truth, right? The Bible or the Pali canon in Buddhism or the Quran or the you know whatever it might be, the Torah. But the Buddha says this so clearly, he says, no matter how you conceive it or how you write it down, the truth will always be other because the truth can't be captured with concepts or a mental image even. Because the truth is always immediate. Like the experience of non-separation, the experience of unification, even which is a relatively accessible experience. Most human beings, most people in this room, have had this experience to some degree. You might, like I said, you might have just told yourself a story about why you just had a nice experience. You didn't feel neurotic for a few seconds. <clears throat> but the reality was that experience arose because what wasn't there, not what was there. The mind simply 
that part of the mind that is constantly fragmenting, involved in neurotic thought, that then governs by creating a bubble that you, the mind seemingly lives inside of, that ceases for a while. And then everything is quite alive and immediate and fresh, and it has a distinct flavor of being whole or complete or no problem. But the world hasn't changed. It's not like racial injustice has disappeared or economic injustice has disappeared or aging has gone away. It's just that the mind isn't seeing things in terms of self and other, good and bad. It's seeing things in a different way, with different eyes, you could say. And the interesting thing is it allows this body-mind, this life, to actually show up in ways that we can't otherwise show up. More creative, more fearless, more wise, more compassionate ways. So that the world actually, the, the problems of the world can be addressed in a way that's more creative, more transforming. So one of the ways we do that in in the tradition is, and I've been talking about this a lot this fall, is trusting the experience of embodiment, using it as a gateway to this other way of knowing, this more intuitive, direct, holistic way. Now, the problem will always be when we hear a talk like this is like we conceptualize what you hear me saying, okay, it's all one. So then we try to live inside the bubble, the idea that it's all one, that we're all connected. And you see people doing this, and it's a little stinky. You know, it's like they're, they've got a story, they like the story, we're all one, and they, and they're sort of like, you can become fundamentalist about this story, you know, and where you get dependent on other people agreeing with you. And then if somebody doesn't agree with you, it's like a, threat. Because you're not interested in the practice, you're interested in the idea, or the idea of emptiness. There's no self. So it's it's true in Buddhism as it is anywhere that we can get really addicted to the ideas, the concepts, instead of doing the practice. So what is the practice? Well, the practice is, you know, we follow these instructions the Buddha gave us, which is Be aware of the body in and of itself. Be aware of sensations in and of themselves. And and we're trained, like, watch out, because as you feel into the body the aliveness of sensation, your mind's going to want to conceptualize what's happening. So when we're aware of sensations, it's only moment to moment, because sensations are changing. They're there. And then there's another sensation there, and then another, and then another. No sensation lasts very long. Same with thoughts. But concepts have the appearance of being very stable and static. That's why we think the world is something that has ground. Because our thoughts, like Minneapolis, that seems pretty solid. Like this was Minneapolis yesterday. Two days ago it was Minneapolis. I bet it's going to be Minneapolis tomorrow, right? And so it 
And they're like, I've been Mark for a long time. 58 years I've been Mark, you know? And so it starts feeling really real. Like in, but it isn't. It's so much more open than concept make it appear to be. Concepts make it appear to be solid and permanent and, and real in a way that it's not. So one of the things the Buddha says as we open to things as they are is we start to notice the insubstantial nature. Now, this is not, for many of you, you've had this experience where you're sitting and the mind settles down into what I called right samadhi or what the Buddha calls samadhi. So the energies of the mind have gathered. There's a sense of relative calm, continuity of present moment awareness. And you'll notice at some point your reality of body shifts from like our normal sense of like, yeah, it's heavy, stiff, you know, it hurts in these predictable ways because it's my body, I've got this injury, right? And it when it looks like, do you notice that your physical experience of the body tends to look like the shape you think your body has? But that idea of what the body looks like, like the mental image, is completely distinct from the sensations. But notice how when you feel into the body, it's like we were massaging the experience of sensation to look like our mental image of the body. But when you're sitting, especially with your eyes closed and you're feeling sensations, first of all, you realize the shape has nothing to do with being aware of sensation. The mental idea, the picture you have of your body is does not conform to the experience of sensation. There's the idea of location and shape are different than the experience of sensation. Because where are the sensations being known anyway? They're just all being known in the space of the mind. And that sort of mapping that onto this concept of what the body looks like, that's another mental activity. That's not feeling the sensations. It happens in conjunction with it, but it's different than whether it's hard or soft or smooth or rough or light or heavy or cold or hot or moving or still, pressure or open space, right? So that's one thing I bet some of you have experienced that the body loses its sense of shape or form. And it's just like sensation happening in this open space. And then another thing you can begin to experience the more your mind settles into what we call samadhi is even the body as something substantial. Like it's almost like, you know, in physics, you probably have heard this, but you know, the platform, the body, doesn't matter what you point to, even something that's seemingly really solid like this. You know, you ask any physicist, even somebody who's just taken one college level course in physics, and they'll tell you what? What will they tell you about this? Mostly space, right? That the distance between the, you know, when you break it down into molecules and then further into atoms and then further, like the distance between these particles is immense relative to the diameter of the particle. And then, of course, within every particle, what's there? Space. Space. More space. You know, And pretty much, in the end, 
It's just energy that isn't even, you can't even nail down. It's only on the level of probabilities at that point, at the quantum level. So, now is that your experience of the bell, of your body, or the platform, or the cushion? No. So what's wrong? Are we dumb? Or, you know, what we, what scientists say, well, your perceptual mechanism is just not refined enough. You need an electron microscope to be able to detect that, how this is mostly space. But what a Buddha might say, or a, somebody who's well practiced, has, is a good meditation practice, would say is no, you can actually directly, immediately experience the body in its insubstantial state. You just need to bring an awareness that's not contaminated by your thought about the body, your thoughts about the body, your expectations about the body, and feel the body as it's actually presenting itself to the sensitive, knowing mind. And you have to be patient. right? You have to keep with curiosity, keep being interested in sensation as sensation. And you'll feel that. People get confused and say, I was levitating, you know. Or that if they're a little bit, you know, care, more careful, they'll come like in an interview, meditation, you know, practice interview with me, and they'll say, I felt like I was floating. But what they were starting to do is their awareness was starting to come into balance, come, become in a more unified, clear, stable state. And then the body starts to be experienced as a movement of energy without any particular shape. And energy doesn't have weight. Right? I'm sure, I mean, this again, I'm not talking about really liberating experiences. I'm just starting to talk, I'm just talking about the starting level of concentration or samadhi, where you feel the sort of energetic quality. You can even get, you know, another way you can get it if you don't want to meditate. Get really good at saunas. You get really hot and jump into cold water and then get really hot and jump in cold water. Do that a few times or get really good body work and then your body will relax and the concentration will arise because of the pleasant feelings in your body and you'll start to feel the body more as energy. This is always the reality of the body but we're unaware of that reality because we're so lost in our bubble, our thoughts about the body. And our thought about the body is that it's substantial, that it has weight, that it's permanent. Right? Oh, we know when we were three months it was different than now and it's going to be different if we make it into an old age. But no, I'm talking about it's just a dance of energy and that energy doesn't have shape or form. Now again, experiencing this doesn't liberate the mind, but it begins to do what drugs did for people in the, you know, those of you who have, and I'm not recommending this at all, but, you know, one of the things uh, that can happen when people have extreme experiences or chemically induced experiences is that it can shift the perceptual mechanism. And then people realize that what they took to be reality was relative. It was a constructed reality. Now, this is what meditation in a more systematic way does, is it demonstrates repeatedly that reality that we no normally inhabit is a constructed reality. 
and a hellish reality a lot of the time, right? Especially for some people. And so then all of a sudden, instead of making us less compassionate, it makes us all the more compassionate because we realize, one, it matters what kind of reality that's being constructed. Like, if I feel apart from the rest of you, then it's relatively easy for me to justify manipulating you or oppressing you or not caring about your suffering. But when I realize that I'm constructing my reality and you're constructing your reality, and that at times I construct really hellish realities and then suffer and act in ways that cause other people to suffer, I start taking a lot more responsibility for how I'm living my life and for the kind of realities that I'm constructing. So one teaching you know, in the tradition is to come into the experience of the body. And uh, next week I'll talk a little bit more about using the, the teaching that are in these pages that I mentioned in Ajahn Sushito's book. It's on the four elements. So one way to train your mind not to be lost in your thought about the body, but to open the door and come into this other way of knowing, this being in the world of Dharma or Dhamma, the way it is, the way it actually is, the reality not mediated by language or thoughts about things, is just to use the, this sort of map. So train your mind, the knowing mind, to experience the body in terms of the earth element. So I mentioned this several times. Earth element means knowing hardness, softness, roughness, smoothness, heaviness, lightness. Now we can do that, right? Wherever you put your attention, let's say something obvious again. So the sits bone against the cushion or chair, right? So there are many different qualities we can experience there. Can't you experience hardness in that experience? Heaviness probably is pretty easy. So the the Buddha describes the body in terms of earth elements, that I just, those six things I just described, the six qualities. And then he describes it in terms of the wind element, don't get confused by these labels, right? Wind just means feeling pressure. Like when you breathe out, there's a little pressure, and there's that movement that comes with the pressure. And even like the, the uprightness, you know, that sort of lifting, kind of being set, sometimes we feel that like almost as if the body's being held. That, that's like a, what we could call a supporting coming out of a sense of internal pressure, right? The body feels supported, held, right? So that's all the wind element. So when you feel something moving like the breath or gas or whatever else, that sense of movement and that sense of being held, those sensations in Buddhism we call wind element or air element. So we have earth element, hardness, softness, roughness, smoothness, heaviness, lightness. We have the wind element. Then we have temperature, usually it's called fire, right? the fire element, but it just means the experience of the direct, immediate experience of coolness and warmth. Now again, just feel your body as it actually is. Doesn't matter, but tune into one place, maybe your forehead. You know, can you feel some warmth there or coolness there, the temperature there? Yeah. And you can train your awareness to feel it everywhere in the body, coolness, warmth. 
because it's reality. There is temperature, just like there is hardness and softness everywhere in the body. And there is pressure or supporting quality everywhere. Some places it's more obvious than others. Like when your two upper and lower teeth are touching, it's so clearly hardness there. You know, or when your lips are touching, it's so clearly softness or smoothness there. Right? So some places it's these these elemental qualities are just obvious. But as your attention gets attuned, you can feel it everywhere. There's more. So we have earth elements, we have air elements, we have temperature. And then the fourth is called the water element. This one's a little bit um, more subtle. But it's the sense, like when you feel your body now, the whole range of the different elements you feel in your body, one of the elements is the sense that it all fits together, like it's all one thing. That cohesive sense of body, that's the water element. So it's, in a sense, in a more specific sense, it's the liquidity of the body, the fluidness feeling. But the more accessible feeling of water, what the, they mean by the water element, is how it's held as one thing. Not, that up, not the supporting quality that I mentioned earlier, but more that how everything is tied or connected. Whenever we're feeling the body, it all is sort of the same sphere, the same place, the same thing. That's the water element. So, for example, I did a, re- you know, this is a meditation practice. So one retreat, I did a six-week retreat once, all day long, you know, for all my waking hours, 18 hours a day, even more, 20 hours a day. I just train my mind to experience the body in, these, in this way. I just like, eventually you, your mind gets pretty fluent with the different aspects. And so you feel earth. You know, that means those six things, hardness, softness, roughness, smoothness, heaviness, lightness. And you just like scan but only noticing the earth elements. Scan only noticing the wind elements. Scan only noticing the temperature elements. Scan only noticing the water elements. And then back to earth. Right? And you're just sort of... And what do you think that results in? The more the, the mind is established in that way of knowing, well, it profoundly challenges the sense of self separate self. Because, remember, you have to, the mind has to construct the idea of being a part of me, being in the body, or me owning the body, me having a body. But the more the mind learns how to reside in that more direct and immediate, you could say energetic, alive, I like the word wild, right? And wild in the sense that there's nobody governing the movement of these different elements. The more the awareness is interested, aware of this, the more the mind isn't in the bubble of self, separate self, self-centeredness. And all the emotions like greed, anger, and delusion that come out of the self-frame, the self-centered frame. So it's a skillful means, it's a technique, and the Buddha offered many. This is just one. You know, training the awareness to be attentive 
to the elemental nature of sensation so devotedly, with so much integrity and interest and continuity that it can't inhabit deluded ideas of what's going on, who I am, who you are, what's good, what's bad, until it learns to be free, right? And then it sort of reforms the relationship to, of the mind to concepts, where concepts, thinking, becomes again a tool to be used and when not needed, to be put aside. Right now, it's like taking over the mind. And the mind takes itself to be the concept that is currently there. I'm feeling lonely. And then it seems like reality is this lonely beast that nobody loves enough, ever enough, never enough. You never loved me enough. You know, and it's like that is a reality because the mind has gotten in the habit of thinking it is the thought it's thinking. But the more we train being free, then thoughts are just something we can use when they're useful to use. Like when we need to map out, well, if I do this, this is my, right? There's lots of times when thinking is useful. Like planning, every once in a while, is actually functional. We just tend to do it way too much. Let me, let me think through that again and again. I didn't like the result I got that first 400 times, so let me do it again. So then it just becomes a tool that we use, and we learn more and more to live our life from this place that's wild and unformed and open and whole, and the heart really gets tenderized because we see how easy it is for me to get lost in bubbles that are suffering, and we tend to notice how everybody else tends to get lost in bubbles that are suffering, being the perpetrator, being the victim thinking they're better, thinking they're worse, right? All the sort of racial frames and class frames and all the different sort of frames, ideas we get caught in, political frames, and suffer because of. So it would be nice to hear from some of you tonight. We'll pick it up again next week, but we have about 10 minutes. If you have any questions or thoughts about what I've said tonight, yeah, Kermit, uh, wait for the mic. Thank you. Um, w- well, what is effort then in relation to concentration or samadhi? Is that the thought that makes you, kind of pushes you back to coming back to the breath or coming back to the physical sensations? How does, how does that tie in? Yeah. What, what is that? Yeah, mostly the effort is the effort to remember this other way of knowing and to honor it, to be devoted to it, to keep returning to it. And then we get lost in thought and we come back. And then to have a particular doorway into this other way, right? Like I said, there are many doorways. This mindfulness of the body using the elements is just one way, right? Where maybe you can train yourself to be aware of all the different elements. But remember, eventually, you don't have to use the different elements. You know how it is in a lot of uh, modalities where you learn the vocabulary, so you, so though at one point you don't have to be tied to it. So you might, on the piano, you know, learn your chords. 
or in dance, you know, you learn the vocabulary of a particular dance form or yoga form or Tai Chi form. But eventually you're just playing with Chi, right? Or you're just expressing some emotion in your dance. And you're, you're not like thinking, oh, yeah, I'm using this particular balletic form or this particular thing. It's just you're really in more in the moment. So it's the same thing with the element meditation. You might train yourself to know the difference between hardness and softness, to recognize what heaviness is and what lightness is in the elemental sense, right? But then eventually, you're just residing in this elemental space of body. You know, the somatic space, the experience of embodiment directly. You're learning to live out of that place as a alternative to being lost in thought. And the interesting thing is we get really nimble where you can be in an embodied state and you're just listening. Someone's talking to you. The mind is still able to comprehend what the person is saying, but your primary anchor, what you're mostly aware of, is this wild, ungovernable state of embodiment, right? And then the person stops talking and it's your turn to talk. And then you find that you can inhabit that world of concept very easily without preparing, without like living in the bubble. This person is saying, I want to have something wise to say in return or handle it well because this person's going to want to take something away from me. So I need to, you know, be careful. And it's a power play here. And right. So we think like I got to stay in the level of the story of me listening to person who's then going to have to respond in order to function in this world. But we can experiment. Start where places where it's safe, like you're at a cash register. So it doesn't matter, matter if you say something embarrassing. And you're just in it. And the thing is, you'll discover, like, when you're in the experience of embodiment, <coughs> you're also in a very loving and compassionate place. Not because you're trying from the point of view of a story to be a loving human being, but because you've abandoned the bubble of being needy or the bubble of being irritated, right? So love is just the natural flavor of that space, of being whole. It's like the non-separation. It's not an idea of me and the cashier or one, right? Our hearts are merging. It's, <laughs> it's not an idea. It's the absence of separation, and it's in a direct and immediate experience. And so whatever we do, even if we're silent, we don't say anything, the vibe of it will be beautiful, will be kind, right? Because it's, not, it's coming out of that space of wholeness, not out of the space of separation. So the idea is to learn the vocabulary, and the effort required is just to remember there's this other mode, this other mode of reality, you could say, the direct mode, the immediate mode, the non-conceptual mode. Yeah, thanks, Kermit. Yeah, first Tim, and then we'll go over here to Robin. My name's Tim. I find the more I um, practice embodiment, I I become more um, outgoing, especially around people I don't know. And also more lighthearted. But it's kind of scary too because it does make me feel kind of like vulnerable at the same time. 
because when we're in that state of embodiment, we don't have fear. But in the but the truth is, it's really a matter of percentage. Like okay, so we're in the experience of embodiment 60% of the time. But every time we touch back into the bubble, that degree of exposure seems terrifying. And we're only safe when we stay in the immediacy of the present moment. So that transition can be very hard. Eventually, we, even when we go back into any bubble, we, this becomes so well established, right? Like, because we're wiring that habit to be in the, and we trust it. So we don't believe the terror we feel. Because from the self point of view, being that exposed and vulnerable is terrifying. Not when we're in the experience of embodiment, but when we leave it and come back to the bubble and realize how intimate. There was a great scene in Seinfeld a long time ago, those of you who watched it. And uh, Jerry has a, if you don't know the show, Jerry has a, he's kind of a jerk in the <laughs> TV show. A funny guy, but a jerk. And he's had this long time friendship with a woman and they're about the same age and and they're kind of sitting in his apartment and they just, you know, it's kind of funny. We've never hooked up. We've never, you know, gotten involved in a relationship. And they're, and they're just like, chat. they always chat with each other. They always have a lot to say. And then there's that awkward silence, right? Where just two human beings are meeting, right? And they don't know what to do, so they start to make out. And that's kind of like it. It's like when we're in the immediacy of the moment, it's fine. But when we think, I'm in the immediacy of the present moment, it's scary, right? So when you're dancing with another human being, but it's just the dance, it's no problem. Whatever the dance is, making love or actually dancing or cooking together or whatever it might be. But when all of a sudden you're back to be, and then it's like, does he or she love me? You know, am I doing it right? <laughs> it's like a lot of insecurity can come rushing in. And then it, then we lose the magic, right? Immediately. Because we're in the thought of me having a special moment. Well, that, that's not a special moment. <laughs> that's a neurotic moment, and it feels that way. Thanks, Tim. Uh, I think Robin was going to be next. You want to pass the mic up? But I think for me, what came up, especially in thinking about this idea of separation, um, and construction, particularly within a political framework. Um, I find it very difficult to find that separation between constructing thoughts. I am putting out something in, in, in the, from the energy that I'm feeling my existence is this, um, and having concrete things that kind of confirm that, um, in in the political context. And I just want to also just share gratitude right now for the water protectors. Um, and thinking last week and something that's been weighing heavy on me um, in Minneapolis is constantly changing um, and constantly being in community with um, folks who have been impacted by um, police brutality in a variety of ways. And then to sit in a city council meeting that's putting 70 percent of funding into that same police um, institution to have that same impact on those communities. It's very easy to say this feels shitty. Um, it's rightfully shitty. And to have political thoughts around why this is shitty, why my 
local city government is X, why they care about Z, who they don't care about. Um, and it feels pretty much concretely confirmed when you look at concrete things such as funding, um, the lack of funding where it's not being diverted to, which communities are being underserved. Um, and it's hard to find that separateness to say, yes, these communities are not appreciated. These communities are not valued in this particular city, in this particular community, and not really being able to find separation in that space. And I think a lot of that is happening with with a world that's not fixed and where we're constantly shifting between pleasant and unpleasant and where different uh, manifestations are expressed in those different shifts um, that create concrete impacts for people, concrete forms of suffering that because if you're in your bubble of thought or your bubble of whatever positioning, social, whatever it may be, you might not get to experience. So it's very difficult to try to find that balance um, and that grounding and that separation. What would happen, you know, in terms of what you're experiencing, what would happen if, let's say you have a niece that you're really close to, and you guys go have your date and go play and just have a delightful, sweet, intimate time together. And then in that moment, in the safety of that moment, and the integrity of that moment and the uh, kind of purity of the, like the qualities of the emotions that the two of you have in that moment, the trust and the love that's flowing and moving. Then from that, like from touching that space of safety and feeling the wholeness of that space, then the interesting thing is from that space to let that space expand to include those systemic, diluted injustices that exist, right? Like, how does that space of safety and unity and trust, how does it color or affect how you hold and relate to the suffering and the injustice? That's just an interesting, uh, because like I was, I said briefly uh, in the talk, you might see you might see coming out of that a lot more uh, sort of power and fearlessness and creativity and and uh, resilience in terms of dealing with some of these systemic problems. And so that it's like it's so important when when people want to you know make the world a better place, address some of the oppressive forces that are here, it's so important to tap into places where we can feel safe and experience what I called samadhi, but it doesn't have to be meditation. It's like whatever works, where we can realize the mind or heart that isn't fragmenting our experience, right? isn't dividing up our experience, where we can once again trust being undefended and open. And then from that place, look at the very real problems. Like let the the sort of view expand out to include not just I'm here with my niece and we've got our afternoon together, but then now in this neighborhood, in this city, in this world, with this 
confusion, this fear, these oppressive uh, institutions, you know, how does this love, this sense of safety, how does that inform the whole? And that's the integration. That's why the same thing with like, we're, we're basically in the context of our what I talked about tonight, our meditation, the niece is our body practice, right? We're, we're having that same love, that same intimacy, that same delightful afternoon when we sit down and do our half an hour meditation in the morning. And then we go out. We take the unity and the trust and the undefendedness that we experience in the intimacy of our 30-minute sit then out into the bus and out into the city council meeting and you know whatever our day is made up of. Obviously, it's not easy. But it's really important to... Because a lot of times when people are on the front lines of social change, the enormity of what needs to happen confuses the mind and they give up on tapping into places where they feel really safe because they don't think they have time to do that because people are suffering. But the thing, if we're not willing to do that, it's really hard to address the suffering in the kind of powerful and creative ways that are required for real change. We just get burnt out. Well, you know this, right? So we have to find ways that, uh, whether it's the formal meditation, but basically we have to get really creative to where we can put down all defenses, all fearful, fear-based armoring, and realize a, a different world that isn't being compartmentalized and divided up. That's why a lot of the great uh, social change leaders were spiritual people. Like, you know, obvious example is Martin Luther King, Gandhi, you know, and other people. They had a deep practice where they could somehow, through prayer or whatever their particular means was, they could access this place of non-division within their own heart. And that gave them a lot of creativity and a lot of strength and fearlessness to do whatever they did in the world. We're a little bit over, so let's uh, let let the words go and just take some time to appreciate being together, appreciate the comments and sharings from the community. And appreciating all of those people on the front lines who care about this world and the suffering in the world. May they and all of us find these moments of real safety where we can put down all of the fear-based bubbles and deeply enter this world of Dhamma the way it actually is. And may we live from that place. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.